Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. I am very excited to welcome a special guest to our studio to discuss some of the earth-shaking decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court and what they mean for the future of religious liberty in the United States, and liberty in general, actually, particularly how that will affect the American Jewish community and other religious minorities. Dahlia Lithwick is one of the most respected journalists and commentators in law and politics in the U.S. She is best known for her smart, incisive, and often humorous commentary on the Supreme Court for Slate, where she is a senior editor and host of the excellent podcast, Amicus. We are all looking forward to her new and very well-timed book, Doo come out in September, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Normally, I would be interviewing someone of Dahlia Stature in the United States on Zoom, but we are lucky enough to catch her on a family visit to Israel, so we get to do this live and in person. Welcome, Dahlia Tuharitz. Welcome. You forgot to say old friend. Old friend. Uh, because <laughs> that didn't come up, but uh, if you look carefully, you can catch us drinking uh, on the <laughs> Street in Ranana, and it is a real treat to be with you again. And about eight uh, years ago, we co-authored a magazine article for the New Republic. We did. Back in the day. Um, I hope you're managing to have an interesting, if not relaxing, vacation here in Israel. I don't know if the sirens and missile attacks last week managed to get your mind off of the Supreme Court term and the January 6th hearings. I think the uh, between the sirens and the FBI search warrant at Mar-a-Lago uh-huh. um, and the ways in which trying to integrate whether how that is even happening and what legal force that has. Uh, It has not been the most restful (laughs) of my uh, family vacations here, but it also, uh, it is, what's the Chinese proverb? You know, may you live in interesting times. I think that's a curse, Dahlia. Holy hell. (laughs) Holy hell, we do live in interesting times. So you've been covering the Supreme Court of the United States for a very long time, decades. I don't know exactly how many, but several. My 23rd term about to start. Oh, my goodness. Can you remember a term like this or was this a singular experience? There's never been a term like this. I've been covering the court since Bush v. Gore. Uh, That was the 2000 election case. I was in the room when the court decided uh, Obergefell, the marriage equality case. I was in the room when the court decided Citizens United, uh, which kind of opened the floodgate for dark money in politics. And despite all of that, those were terms in which you would have one or two blockbuster cases a year. We have never seen a term in which we had seven, eight, nine blockbusters. In fact, some of the blockbusters, like the abortion case, Dobbs, which I know we're going to talk about, knocked the other blockbusters out of the news cycle. And so in a strange way, the court sucked up so much oxygen, not just with the the abortion case and a gun case, which is seems secondary but might be just as crucial, but also so much intramural, internecine bickering at the court in all sorts of different ways. The justices taking swipes at each other. We've never had a leaked opinion of the magnitude that the Dobbs opinion uh, was. We've just never, ever seen a term in which by almost every metric, it felt like two things were happening at once. One was that the wheels were coming off institutionally, that the institution 
felt unstable. There's now eight-foot security fencing around the building mm-hmm. uh, because of threats on the justices' lives. And at the same time, an absolute irrefutable truth of having a 6-3 conservative supermajority for the first time that is just experiencing this juggernaut of victories. And it's hard to hold those two ideas together that the institution by almost every measure is cratering, including uh, public opinion polls. And at the same time, this 6-3 supermajority is kind of setting the trajectory of what is going to come in the United States for years, and that is not going to change. I remember thinking back in the day, decades ago, how politicized the Israeli Supreme Court seemed in comparison to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was up there in the ivory tower interpreting the law, cut off from the vagaries of day-to-day politics. And now it seems like the U.S. Supreme Court has not only caught up with Israel, but zoomed ahead of it. It's so interesting because when I was here on sabbatical in 2013, I taught at the law school at Hebrew U, and I taught the United States constitutional legal system. One of the things that I was so struck by, I always use this as a, a reference point when I think about the difference between the Israeli and the U.S. Supreme Court, was my students thought it was snot out your nose hilarious how mystified the U.S. Supreme Court is, that the idea that there is this oracular institution and these justices keep telling us they're calling balls and strikes, explaining balls and strikes to my Israeli students was a challenge, but, you know, that each and every one of them is just a brain in a vat and that the minute they're sworn in, uh, they strip away, as Clarence Thomas said, all of their pre-existing ideological viewpoints and they just become demigods who are communing by way of Ouija board with (laughs) Madison and Jefferson. And that's what they do. And then Americans, hook, line, and sinker, believe some version of that story. And Israelis are so cynical about how politicized their court is that when you try to explain, I remember showing them video of the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings, you know, showing them video of the John Roberts hearings. And they just thought that the mystification, the sort of, willing surrender of political disbelief that Americans have about this institution was the single most hilarious thing they'd ever heard. And one of the things that is interesting, and it's very, very easy to explain it to an Israeli audience, it's hard to explain it in some sense to a U.S. audience, is that the scales have fallen off the eyes of Americans now. And Americans are looking around, right? We are seeing a, a 15-point drop in the approval ratings of the court. The court's approval ratings, and this uh, was exacerbated by the abortion ruling, in the high 30s, that's the lowest it has ever been since Gallup polling started asking the American people about the court. And Americans are just gobsmacked that the court is a partisan political body. And, I, I mean, Israelis think that the idea that Americans were willing to surrender to that notion is just crazy. So in a weird, weird way, I think Israelis are two beats ahead on this front because they just look at Americans now and they're like, y'all are suckers if you believe (laughs) this story. Like, you go, you know, if you want to believe Chief Justice John Marshall that the court is some special, you know, castle in the sky and everybody's just happily commuting with the framers, no Israeli ever believed a myth like that. Of course, the huge headline of the term, the overwhelming story, was the Dobbs decision on abortion, overturning Roe versus Wade. Certainly, I want to discuss that. But 
to an extent, as you said, there were so many important cases and the noise over the abortion decision overshadowed two other big decisions involving religion that I think have direct implications for American Jewish life. So can we go over those two decisions, the one involving religious education and the one involving praying on the football field and go over what they mean? So so let's do one quick thing before we do that, Allison, which is just walk through the two religion clauses in the First Amendment, just because even Americans, I think, don't fully understand the two clauses and they actually work in tension. And both the cases we're going to talk about surface the ways in which they're uh, at war with each other. So the first uh, part of uh, the First Amendment, first of all, everybody knows it protects free speech, but then there are these two conflicting religion clauses. The first is called the Establishment Clause, and it holds that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And that essentially means that it's not going to have sort of an Anglican church, right? That the state cannot have a state-sponsored church. Uh, the other clause is the Free Exercise Clause, and that essentially says Congress shall make no law respecting the free exercise of religion. And that was designed to prevent Congress from passing any laws which interfered with individual uh, religious practices, right? So you can see the ways in which in some that that was kind of a compromise that the framers were brokering, but it's also in tension with one another. What we had essentially this year was uh, a bunch of religious liberty cases, and I should probably note also they follow on a whole sequence of religious liberty cases that have come before, uh, most notably the Supreme Court batted away COVID restrictions for religious, uh, for churches and for synagogues. Uh, they did that on what's called the shadow docket, uh, which is a docket that is the emergency docket at the Supreme Court that used to be used mostly for death penalty cases and is suddenly used for all sorts of things all the time. The problem with the quote-unquote shadow docket is that the court hands down these unreasoned decisions. Sometimes it's two paragraphs. Sometimes they're unsigned. We don't know even the vote count. We're not sure exactly which justice authored it or which justice is signed off on it. And then that becomes the law. Right. So that's been going on for the last couple of years. And in fact, one of the reasons to loop back to where we started, the court starts off with these horrible polling numbers, is that they decided a really, really important pre-Dobbs abortion case called Texas's SB8 case. And this was a Texas bill that was banning abortion even before the court got rid of Roe. They did it on the shadow docket. So they do it in the dark of the night. At midnight, we get this page and a half unreasoned order. And people just because we said so, docket. It's the because we said so, docket. And by the way, it becomes the law of the land. And that's problematic for lower court judges who are supposed to be applying this new law and they don't know what it is. So last year, the court had done a lot of stuff on the so-called shadow docket. And I'm saying so-called because Justice Alito does not like the word shadow docket. Sounds too spooky. It's the emergency docket. And it's fine. That was my Justice Alito impression. Uh, come to the bar and run, Anna. I'll do the other eight justices. <laughs> okay. So uh, essentially what happened last year is the court on the shadow docket slightly changed uh, the religious liberty test and more or less said that anything that you do as a state that impinges on religious liberty has to be subject to really, really high levels of scrutiny. And that opens the floodgates for a whole bunch of the challenges we're going to talk about now. The two cases, essentially, that the court decided this year, both very, very much swinging toward religious liberty over everything else. One involved uh, a public education scheme in Maine 
that allowed taxpayer dollars to be directed to sectarian religious schools that expressly taught religion and, Mm -hmm. in fact, discriminated against LGBTQ parents and such. The second case, which is the one I think that got more attention, literally involved a high school football coach who was praying on the 50-yard line uh, at school games and was doing explicitly, again, sectarian Christian prayer and had both teams coming and taking a knee with him and lifting up a helmet and praying to Jesus. And both of those were essentially religious liberty cases. In the one case, we had Maine parents saying, if you're sending money to other schools, you have to send them to our Christian academies. And the court signed off on that. In the second case, the court said this coach, who simply wants to express, quote, private prayer after a game on the 50-yard line. Very private. There were, I mean, in one of the episodes that Justice Gorsuch ignored in his opinion, literally there were fans coming down from the stands, <laughs> knocking over the cheerleaders and the band. Uh, it was on television. So this was the private, quote unquote, prayer that the court privileged and essentially said, even if you are a public school teacher, even under the terms of your employment, you do not evangelize, you do not in any way, create a, a, a feeling in the school that in order to play on the football team, you have to take a knee for sectarian prayer. All of that gets batted away because this private coach has a religious liberty interest in expressing his religious views. So I guess in the aggregate, the two cases really now do stand for the proposition that that wall between church and state is almost completely eroded, that both in terms of funding, education, it is clearly the case that the floodgates will be open now uh, for sending taxpayer dollars to sectarian, expressly sectarian schools. And also that on this notion of schools, particularly public schools, were meant to be a place where students could not face religious proselytizing That has now been essentially wiped away by religious liberty claims from employees of the schools. So essentially, really, with the stroke of the pen, the court did away with decades, decades of jurisprudence that held uh, that that line existed right there. The line is almost entirely gone. So at the risk of being parochial, extremely parochial, is this bad for the Jews? (laughs) No, it's, (laughs) listen, it's the question that the Jews have been asking all year about these cases. And it's one of the most, I should note, I'm um, a fellow at Hartman. And one of the questions we've been exploring for two years is what do we do when the court, the new Roberts court essentially annihilates the wall between church and state. And there are Jews on both sides of all these issues. And this is kind of a signal moment in American jurisprudence, because for the longest time, mostly liberal and conservative American Jews were very strongly of the view that we have to have a wall between church and state. It's always going to be bad for the Jews uh, if you allow into the public square religion And more and more we've seen in the past few decades, Orthodox Jews aligning themselves, notably, by the way, in those COVID cases where we saw the Orthodox Jewish community strongly aligning itself with the Catholic Church, 
thing that we don't accept that there are uh, caps on how many people can pray in peak COVID. And so one of the really interesting developments is to have Jews on both sides of these cases, to have Jews on both sides, by the way, of Dobbs, the abortion cases, and to have Jewish arguments rooted in halacha being presented to the court in a whole array of cases, and Dobbs might be the most interesting, where you have Jewish advocates on both sides of the case. On one side, you have NCJW, National Council for Jewish Women, strongly making halachic arguments about how life can't possibly begin at conception. And there were briefing in Dobbs. There were briefs in Dobbs by Orthodox Jewish groups willing to signal at least a halachic concession to the idea that life begins at conception. So then the meta question is the one you just asked, which is, is it good for the Jews? And I think in some parochial sense, sure, it's good for the Jews because you're going to get Jewish academies that are funded with taxpayer money, right? That's great. Is it good for the Jews? I think there's a really complicated argument about how American Jews should feel about the enmeshing of public life and the state action and uh, private religion. And a lot of American Jews feel very, very, very strongly that even if you get short-term wins, it might not necessarily be good for the Jews qua Jews when one kind of religion is ascendant in the United States. And here I guess I should just note one of the troubling lines we've seen as religious liberty has expanded and expanded again uh, in the last few years is that death row prisoners who want to have they, their pastor of choice in the room with them before they die have won if they are Christian and lost if they are of other faiths. Really? So much so that Elena Kagan called it out. Elena Kagan, one of the Jewish justices. The only one left, basically. Yeah, she's the the only one left now that Stephen Breyer stepped down. And she was the one who sort of said, if we're talking about religion, let's talk about religion. It is very, very hard to imagine that some of these cases, including, by the way, the guy who wanted to pray on the 50-yard line, if he had unrolled his prayer mat and wanted to pray to Allah, or if it was a Wiccan who wanted to uh, do a Wiccan ritual, that the court would have been so solicitous. What if he wanted to blow the shofar? Or if he wanted to blow the shofar. And it explodes this idea of the United States as a quote-unquote Judeo-Christian state, which has been very, very much pushed uh, on one hand. It raises real questions for American Jews who have to decide whether they want to lash themselves to this notion. The United States is fundamentally a Judeo-Christian country or whether they're not comfortable in that space because a lot of the people who are making that argument are arguing that, in fact, it is a Christian country. Or maybe just face reality, look at these decisions, look at the discussion of Christian nationalism in the political discourse. Maybe it's kind of, well, Jews, Muslims, you may not like it, but this is the way it is, and this is the reality you have to deal with. It's really, really hard, and I cannot emphasize enough, but having lived through, you know, the Nazis marching in Charlottesville in 2017, I can just say that the deep unease that American Jews feel with being both the recipients of that kind of Christian nationalism, you know, Nazi march, for instance, 
and also recognizing that they are white and have the privilege of whiteness, even when the Nazis march uh, and are talking about uh, KKK ideas. It is such a fault line in how American Jews think about themselves and about power. And we're not doing a great job of, of, of parsing that, what it means. And I think that fault line is exactly the one you just tracked at the Supreme Court. No, absolutely. And I think people are feeling unbalanced by this uh, abandonment of total religious neutrality. I think that's what made many American Jews feel safe. And now that that's gone, they're looking around and trying to figure out what to hold on to in terms of how to define their Americanness and their place in American life. But while we're on religion and the court, what about the religion of the justices? As you said, we very recently we had three Jewish justices, uh, Justice Breyer, the great uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Elena Kagan. Elena Kagan is now our, uh, our sole representative. And all six of the justices in the majority of Dobbs were Catholic. Right. We're at least born Catholic. I yeah. think that uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch now uh, self-identifies as something else, but certainly raised Catholic. Um, and I would just tell you that this is the third rail in American Supreme Court reporting and that every single time you are asked to talk about this as a journalist, you get called out for anti-religious animus. Uh, it is just a unbelievably intractable problem for Americans on all sides of the spectrum to talk about whether, if, and how personal religion inflects on jurisprudence. Justice Scalia famously refused to go back and speak at the University of Chicago Law School because Jeff Stone, who was then the dean there, wrote an article at one point in an abortion case saying, I'm just going to say that everybody on the side of doing away with abortion is Catholic, and I guess I'm just going to write that now. And Justice Scalia at the time was so affronted that anyone would even intimate that that had anything to do with the case that he literally wouldn't go back there. He had taught there. So it is very fraught. And maybe the best truncated way to answer it is that Amy Coney Barrett, at her hearing not to be on the U.S. Supreme Court, but to be on the Seventh Circuit when she was initially nominated, and poor Diane Feinstein, who unerringly says the right thing in the wrong way, said to her, having reviewed, and by the way, Justice Barrett had written law review articles saying, of course, if you're a Catholic judge, you should re recuse in a death penalty. I mean, she had put it kind of on the table, and poor Senator Feinstein tried to ask her about it, and she ended up saying the sort of Yoda-like phrase, the dogma lives loudly within you. And it was so bad. And on both sides of the aisle, you know, liberals and conservatives just shellacked Senator Feinstein for suggesting that religion in any way affected how Judge Barrett judged. That by the time it was her turn to have a hearing at the U.S. Supreme Court, the Democrats didn't ask her questions about the fact that she had kind of grown up in this church, the people of praise, it has handmaids, it's problematic, there's real questions of abuse, just crickets, because you can't ask. And so your question is the right one, to which I probably have an elaborate answer that I almost completely feel uncomfortable talking about, because I think Jews like to, they love in the week after Justice Ginsburg died, I cannot tell you how many briefings I did for Jewish groups where we connected 
her, right. you know, worldview with her sense of tzedek, 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 and a poster on her wall. poster and how important it was and how deeply Jewish her, her jurisprudence was. But, man, you do not like to see it turned against you. And so this is a conversation, again, that is just cartoonish and impoverished. And it's not helping at all when you have a Supreme Court that, as you say, is the most religious Supreme Court, bar none, we have ever had in history. And nobody can talk about it. And yet we freely talk about, you know, how the gender of the justices affects their rulings on gender and um, uh, some of their other ethnic backgrounds affect some of their, and and it's spoken of freely. And yet religion is off It's the third rail. And I would just say this. If you go back and you read either the Frankfurter hearings or the Brandeis hearings, the anti-Semitism directed at those justices was so pernicious and so disgraceful and so toxic that we as Jews also have to think, just to go back to your question, is it good for the Jews, really, to open this Pandora's box of linking a justice's religious values to their jurisprudence? Because I assure you, when it's directed at the Jewish justices, at least at the time, it was unbearable. And it was racist. I mean, it was anti-Semitic to the point of your jaw would drop. And so I'm a little bit less than I might otherwise be inclined to say, you know, open the box. Let's just talk about the churches you were raised in. Let's talk about the fact that the court, the day before the first Monday in October every year, the justices go to a red mass at a Catholic church. And they sit at that mass as a Catholic priest inveighs against the evils of abortion and talks about issues that are coming before the court. And the justices attend that. And when I was a baby reporter, Allison, I used to write every year, this is kind of (laughs) crazy. This is insane. Why is this happening? Justice Justice Breyer used to go. He thought it was a hoot. Justice Ginsburg used to go to Red Mass until one year when the, I guess the sermon offended her because it was about abortion. But I just think that the level of enmeshment of religion and the court is so profound and so freaky weird for a court that's meant to be a secular entity that the fact that we can't talk about it openly is bananas. And at the same time, I'm at least worried enough, having seen, again, Jews absolutely shelled by claims that, horrible claims, particularly in Brandeis's case and, and uh, Cardozo's case, uh, horrible claims about Jews and how they can't be fair and how they are fighting on two teams at the same time that I'm a little bit anxious to open the box. Oh, while you're already anxious, Dahlia, let's talk about abortion and the Dobbs decision. For faithful Dahlia Lithwick readers and listeners, we all know you've seen this coming for a long time, even before the leak decision. I believe we've been nicknaming you Cassandra. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, I don't know how happy you are to be right right now. You've obviously had to grapple with the history of law when you were crafting a discussion of abortion in your Lady Justice book. Maybe you can give us a sneak preview of what you thought, you know, as expressed in in the book. But you wrote those uh, lines before the decision. And so, you know, how is what you thought then and what you see now changed? And uh, if you since you're Cassandra anyway, what do you see for the future in terms of uh, how this fight is going to play out? 
for what it's worth, just to get the nomenclature exactly correct, uh, amicus listeners will tell you that Cassandra has never been quite it, that my name, at least for the last couple of years, is Broken Tigger. And it's Broken Tigger in distinction, contra, as lawyers would say, to uh, Eeyore, who are born depressed. I was not. I'm generally a pretty zippy guy. But holy cow, the last few years, as you point out, uh, have broken me. And I was very, very much of the view that this was coming and also that it was coming quickly. And that when Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett were all hustled onto the court uh, under Donald Trump, it was very, very clear to me that this was they were going to sort of be gunning for abortion. The fact that they took the Mississippi case that was Dobbs was a shock. Uh, the court had just decided whole women's health a few years before they had quite literally just decided a Louisiana case that raised the same issue. There was no reason to take the case. Uh, the court took the case. And this brings us back a little bit to that Texas case, SB8, because the day the term started, the court had already said that Texas could go ahead and nullify uh, the right to abortion for one-tenth of the childbearing population in the United States. As I said, they did it on the shadow docket. Uh, it was a pretty scary law, the Texas law. It got referenced ultimately by most people as a kind of vigilante bill because it wasn't enforced by any state actor. It more or less said that any abortion that took place in Texas uh, after the statutory period could be litigated by anyone in the country, right? So you could live in Vermont and you could sue a provider in Texas in a civil suit and you could collect $10,000 bounty if That's you crazy. prevailed. If the provider won, by the way, there was no bounty. And what it did more or less was just shut the door on all abortions in Texas. And that happened in September. So the fact that the court blessed that in some sense meant that if you were carefully watching the court... And the court just flung up their hands and said, the majority of the court, well, nothing we can do. Except, by the way, really interestingly, John Roberts, who is always opposed to abortion in every context, but didn't like how unseemly this was. Once the court signed off on Texas's law, and then I think there was a huge outcry that it happened on the shadow docket. So they heard it again. It was argued. It was briefed this time. And again, the court said, yeah, this is fine. Texas can go ahead and do this. And people around the country can sue providers in Texas and clinics closed. And that was the end of abortion for, as I said, a tenth of the childbearing population of the whole country. Dobbs was not a surprise. I guess the answer to your question is I wrote the book in the SB8 era. I knew that this was coming. I heard oral arguments in December in the Dobbs case, and by then it was very clear. So I wasn't as shocked as a lot of people were, and I think a lot of Americans just thought this could not happen. Most American women simply had grown up in a time, post-1973, where this was not an issue. For me, I think I wrote big chunks of the book trying to call out, and this really is Eeyore slash Cassandra, I don't think it stops at abortion. I think birth control is on the table now. It's clear that in vitro is on the table. It's clear that surrogacy is on the table. And we're seeing, right, we're seeing plan B, the morning after pill. We're seeing physicians who won't give methotrexate to people who need it for medical conditions because it can cause abortion. So we are seeing, I think, the floodgates absolutely open, not just on abortion the way we think about abortion. I was trying very, very hard when, as I was writing the book, 
to get two steps ahead of what's coming next rather than just talk about Roe because to me Roe was already gone. Cheery. Hey, that's me. <laughs> I will say maybe I'll, I'll add one little footnote to this, which is I've spent an immense amount of time this year really listening to the black women who, particularly, you know, a generation older than you and I, who have been very, very quick to say, and I'm thinking of Professor Carol Anderson, I'm thinking of Peggy Cooper Davis, I'm thinking of Dorothy Roberts, a lot of them I've had on the show. And one of the things they keep reminding me over and over and over again is that if you were a poor black woman in Mississippi or Alabama, you never really had a right to abortion. If you were a poor black woman trying to vote in Georgia, you never actually had rights under the Voting Rights Act. And so I think in a way, the way I've tried to think both about this term and also in constructing the book is that this is a teachable moment for white Americans, and I'm going to say most Jews, who thought that because things were available to them, they were available to everyone. And I've devoted an immense amount of the podcast this year to just hearing people say, I told you so. Yep. And... I'm okay with that because I think it's a lesson we have to learn. There's so much magical thinking around abortion, around gun rights, around health care, around voting rights that says that if I live in Connecticut and I can just pop my ballot into a drop box, then I guess everybody can vote freely. And it can't be the case that people stand in line for two days in Georgia. Well, it is. It's always been thus. And I think the same thing is true of abortion, that... Women in Texas always had to drive miles for days and get childcare to terminate a pregnancy or even to get just basic, basic health care around reproductive freedom. And ending row peeled off the patina. I guess we end where we begin, which yeah. is the scales falling from your eyes. But I think particularly as Jews to look around and say, just because we coded as white or, you know, wealthy or privileged and because our lives were essentially free from those barriers doesn't mean that it was free for everyone and this is a really important moment and by the way there's stuff that can be done and it's huge structural stuff in the United States it's fixing you know the malapportion senate it's doing away with the electoral count act it's doing away with gerrymanders you know there's things that can be done but they're huge things. But in some ways, the test of the last year has been explaining to people who are shocked on many, many fronts that we've just kind of bump, 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 bumped, that that would not be shocking at all to you if you were a black American living in Alabama. Wow. Wow. We haven't even had time to talk about the gun decision or to talk about, you know, we mentioned voting rights and talk about gerrymandering in depth. But this podcast could be three times the length with all of the questions that I have for you. Just to sort of wrap up this institution you've been covering for 23 years, the things, you know, that have been given its structure, the number of justices, how they're named. Here in Israel, 70 years old, you're gone. You're out of the Supreme Court. You know, it's clearly a rotating decision. And the justices are are chosen by this committee, a judicial uh, selection committee that's made up of justices themselves, that's made up of people from the Knesset and cabinet members and members of the Bar Association and not just 
plucked by the guy who happens or woman who happens to be president at the moment that one of the justices drops dead or resigns, etc. You talked about the polling numbers sort of um, questioning the legitimacy of the court. How do you feel these days after what you've been watching about the legitimacy of the court and its fitness under the system for it to be making these decisions that are, are so powerful and that are affecting so many lives? It's a great question and it's a great way to say that I think a lot of those of us who've critiqued the court this past year who have said and and folks should just read Elena Kagan dissenting or Breyer dissenting or Justice Sotomayor dissenting who talk about Justice Sotomayor talks about the stench of illegitimacy over the court. The dissent in Dobbs in the abortion case is this elegiac cry from Justices Breyer, Kagan and Sotomayor saying we look awful. America has lost confidence. In 1992, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, given the opportunity to put a stake in the heart of Roe, uh, three Republican appointees thought that the court was more important than their own short-term interests. That's what they're worried about, right? And that's what you're asking about. The interesting answer to your question, I think, for those of us who get accused of, you just don't like these outcomes. You know, you weren't fetching when Obergefell came down. You weren't complaining when Whole Women's Health came down, right? Expanding reproductive rights or expanding LGBTQ rights. You just don't like being on the losing side. To which my answer is, when the court is polling in the 30s, this is a problem that transcends ideology or politics. And it is a problem, by the way, that is exacerbated when the justices give speeches like Clarence Thomas did, where he's like, I don't even believe in this court anymore, right? We don't trust each other. All trust is gone. The institution is falling apart. Uh, where you have the justices participating in the demise of confidence in the court. And justice, again, as I said, Chief Justice Roberts, the chief justice who loves every one of these 6-3 outcomes, loves them, devoted his life to them, and is terrified to vote with the majority, with the five conservatives, because of what it is doing uh, to erode public confidence in the court. And that's the thing I worry about. And you can sort of believe me or not, but I say often. I always believe you. Well, I, I mean, I do know that folks who don't like my politics say you're just sour grapesing it right now. And my response is always when the U.S. Supreme Court decides the outcome of the 2024 election, which it will, heard it here first, when it does, the alternative to the court deciding elections is the army, right? It's the mob. There's no good plan B in a country rooted in the rule of law if the court has no legitimacy, and the court, by the way, has no power, right? Neither the power of the purse nor the sword. The only power it has in the United States to enforce its directives is the legitimacy of the public. So this is the thing I worry about. And the very last thing I'll say flips us right back to where we started, which is that Americans are so enmeshed in magical thinking about the court that when you say the words court packing, when you say the words term limits, when you say the words, you know, have a rotating system where each president gets to seat two justices and it's depoliticized and it turns into a normal, sane 
court as opposed to a juristocracy of nine people imposing their will on the country. And by the way, when we have these conversations in the States, people frequently reference Israel, right? They reference modern courts in constitutional democracies around the country that have solved the very problems you're describing. And Americans don't like any of it. They don't like it. They can hate the court. They can hate what the court is doing on guns. They can hate what the court is doing on, you know, stripping unions of power, of stripping the EPA of the power to regulate the environment. They can hate all that. But the court has to be nine people and they have to serve for life. Why? Because God said so or something like that. (laughs) And so a bunch of the reforms that you are hinting at or at least ideas we could pull from other countries that have functional non-juristocracies have no traction among the American people. And Joe Biden famously put together this amazing blue ribbon, you know, court reform commission. And they came up with what is effectively, you know, a multiple page shruggy emoji. Like, sure, there's stuff we could do, but the American people don't want it. And so I think it goes back to the idea that somehow Americans have deeply internalized that a nine-person court that rules for life, that has people gaming their retirement so that they can retire and be appointed by a president who will put someone on the court uh, whose ideas align with theirs, that's just the world we're stuck with. And it's that disempowerment that what did I call it before? Sort of the blind subjugation of self, the suspension of rigorous criticism around how the court is structured that in some sense is, I think the, it's an almost religious problem and it's almost impossible to penetrate right now. Between that and January 6th, thank you and Trump. Thank you, America, for making Israel look a little less uh, off-balance. High-functioning. <laughs> Very much so. Okay, well, luckily we can end this interview on an upbeat note by reminding people that they can very soon order and read your book. Can they pre-order it yet or not They can yet? pre-order it. They can pre-order Lady it. Lady Justice, Penguin Press, and thank you. Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. It's a, a very upbeat uh, title. You know, presuming that we can save America. Dahlia, it's been amazing. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your time here in Israel and have a safe trip home. Thank you for having me. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks again to Dahlia. And thanks so much to my producer, Avi Rosenstein. For the latest on Israel's fifth election campaign, don't forget to listen to Election Overdose with Anshel Pfeffer and Dahlia Shenlin, which drops on Friday. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer. Until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.